I want to speak <clears throat> on Mark chapter 2 and verse 10. Verses 10 and 11 really. With the sermon title of Christ's power to forgive. Christ's power to forgive. So verse 10, so 10 and 11 I should, should have said. Mark chapter 2 verse 10. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. That's the greatest message in the world, isn't it? For those of you who have been brought up in church, this story of the um, paralysed man being let down through the roof and being healed by Jesus will be, will be a very familiar story to you. But it should not blind us. The familiarity should not blind us to the central truth that this story conveys. Namely, that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Oh, to me that makes me want to um, jump up and down that the power is in the hands of Jesus to forgive human sins, to forgive my sins and your sins. The Son of Man, of course, is the description the book of Daniel gives to describe the coming divine Messiah, he will be given authority, exousia, authority and a kingdom by God. And the Lord Jesus takes this title from Daniel 7 and he calls himself some 80 times in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. And thus by using that title he claims all the authority and all the power that that title implies. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that he has divine authority and he exercises this authority on earth as he continues today to do in heaven. And on earth, and we read it in Mark uh, and all the Gospels, but it's so clear in Mark, he exercises authority over the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He, ex he exercises authority and power over demons, over disease, over death, and here, over sin. He has the authority to forgive sins. Our text today is an example of the exercise of this messianic son of man's authority and power. And you know, if, you, if you're a saved Christian here today, then you are a person upon whom Christ has exercised his power and authority. Otherwise you wouldn't be saved. It's the only way to be saved. In fact, no one can be saved unless Christ 
exercises this power. Well, the familiar scene is set uh, in the first two verses of this chapter. The Lord Jesus uh, enters Capernaum where he lived, um, probably in the home of Peter. We don't know that for sure. But he was in this house and it must have been a decent sized house because the Lord Jesus used it as a kind of church. He, he, he used it to preach the word in. And Luke explains that on one of these days when he was preaching, Pharisees and law scholars came from, from every town in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem uh, and the room was packed with people to the point where Mark uh, records that there was no room left, not even outside in the garden. The, the whole room was packed out. You see, Christ's fame had spread far and wide, hadn't it? Uh, and we get the sense that in this room where the Lord Jesus stands up to preach the word, that the atmosphere was electric. There were all sorts of different uh, emotions. There was the, the ice-cold opposition and cynicism of the scribes. Um, God's presence was tangible. Luke records in, in his record of this account that the presence of the Lord was there to heal. There was this tangible presence of the presence of God. And then there was the hope and the expectation of the, of the ordinary people. But there were all these different um, emotions in this electrically charged uh, room. And the Lord Jesus begins to preach. And as he does so, he hears voices from above. And he, um, he hears the sound of the, the roof matting being removed. Uh, and a man tied to a stretcher is lowered through a hole in the roof. Well, if you're a minister of the word, you, you get used to um, some disturbance, don't you? And, um, but this, this, is, this is a whole new level of disturbance. A man being let down through a roof. Four men had attempted to get their paralysed friend into the room, but they couldn't get through the crowd. So they, they went up the, the roof ladder and they got onto the roof and they removed some of the, the, the matting and they lowered the paralysed friend down through the roof. Right down into the presence of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus noted their faith and he said to the man sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The Lord Jesus saw real faith in this man. He saw real belief and repentance. And what did Jesus do? He forgave his, his sins. No one is saved without saving faith. And saving faith is a gift from God, which comprises of two things. It comprises of belief in Jesus and it comprises of repentance away from sin and to Jesus. That's saving faith. We are saved, the Bible teaches everywhere, through faith. 
And no one is saved by his own works, but by, but by the grace of God through faith. I mean, it's obvious here, this man was incapable of saving himself. He couldn't do anything. He was dependent on other people for everything. He was helpless and hopeless. He had no capacity to work, to earn, even for himself physically, but certainly for his salvation, as, as is true of all of us. He, had, he was too weak, too paralysed, too poor, too impotent to save himself. He knew he was wretched on the outside, but more importantly, he knew he was wretched on the inside. And these scribes described in uh, verse 6. These uh, scribes, these law scholars were astonished to hear Jesus say what he said. Mark records in verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. There you are, this man has been... Um, Forgiven, and these scribes are there, sat reasoning. They're obviously furious with the Lord Jesus. Well, it's not. It's not difficult to imagine what they were reasoning, is it? You see, the role of the scribes, which were really, they, it says scribes and Pharisees, but they were all really one group. The scribes, were, you know, they were part of the Pharisees. There, the role of the scribe was to create sets of rules from their interpretation of scripture and they set out what was acceptable or unacceptable to God in all the spheres of private and public life. If you ever hear a, a, a minister trying to set out rules for every part of your private or public life, run a mile from them. The forgiveness of sins, of course, was not excluded in their system, but forgiveness of sins could only come through the Mosaic system, through the sacrifices described in Leviticus, and through the priest. There had to be a priestly absolution of sins. And only God could forgive sins through a Mosaic ritual of atonement. And yet here, right before their very eyes, is a man acting as if he, he had within himself the power and authority to forgive sins directly. And they were absolutely appalled. And they look at one another. And you know, you know sometimes you're in a group and, and you know each other well and something happens and you look at each other and you all have, you know exactly what, you, what the other people are, are thinking and they know what you're thinking. Well, that's what the scribes are like. They all had the same thought all at the same time. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what they were reasoning. That's what they were thinking. And this was a dangerous moment for the Lord Jesus because um, the law in Leviticus 24 prescribes that a blasphemer be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. And they were thinking, well, this man's just blasphemed. 
He's blasphemed against God because he's taken to himself a, a power that only God can exercise. And in verse 8 we read that our Lord perceived their thoughts. And in the following verse, verse 9, he asked them this question. Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. You see, that, that, that there would be no immediate visible result to, to, to the forgiveness of this man's sins. But there would be, if, if Jesus could heal the body of this man, this paralysed man, there would be immediately a visible result and everyone would see. Forgiveness was not a falsifiable claim, but the physical healing was. And the thing is, is that if Jesus had failed, if he had said to this man, be healed, and this man wasn't healed, then Deuteronomy 18 verse 22 would kick in immediately. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. And in order to prove that the Son of Man has the power and authority to forgive sins, our Lord proceeds to heal this man's body. He'd already healed his soul. He now proceeds to heal his body. And Jesus would either be proved to be God or a blasphemer, one or the other. You see, there's no middle ground when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and our attitude towards him. He's either a blasphemer or he's God. There's no middle course. C.S. Lewis said this in his, in his famous trilemma where he, he says Christ is either lunatic, liar or Lord. He's either bad, mad or God. He has to be one of those things. And in his famous wartime radio broadcast he says let no one say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can't do that. He's either the worst person who has ever lived, or he is the Son of Man, he's the Son of God. There's no middle ground. You can't, you can't praise him, you can't say, well, he's, good. he's a great uh, moral example. He's either the Son of God or he isn't. And what, a, what worse thing could, could you do than claim to be God if you're not God? And so Jesus, verses 10 and 11 says, But that ye may know that, ye, that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin, sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way, into thine house. Immediately we read in verse 12. He rose up, picked up his bed. And went to his house glorifying God. Amazement gripped the congregation. And they glorified God saying. We never saw it on this fashion. Well that's the story. 
But I want to pick up the main lesson of this account. And this is, and this really, this, the main lesson of this account is the power of the Lord Jesus to forgive sins. That's a distinctive thing about Christianity. It is that through Christ, it offers forgiveness of sins. All, all other religions, even some forms of Christianity, unfortunately, teach that our sin is removed by a man making amends with God through self-abasement or self-reformation. But the message of true Christianity, biblical Christianity, the, the authentic gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ has power, exousia, authority and power to forgive your sins. That's the gospel message. A man's greatest need is to escape the wrath of God and the eternal punishment of unforgiven sin. And what is, the, what is the eternal consequence of unforgiven sin? It's an eternity in hell. It's what the Bible teaches. You see, it's unforgiven sin that will send you in the end to hell. God is a merciful God. And through the good news of Jesus Christ, he offers sinful men complete forgiveness of sins. And so therefore, you do not need to go to hell. Your unforgiven sin can become forgiven. And you can be saved from God's wrath and from the eternal punishment in hell. But there's one thing you have to understand. It's this, that the Bible teaches that it is only through the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that forgiveness of sins is possible. There aren't, all, there aren't these different roads to, to God. There aren't all these different religions to God. There, there is no equal or level playing field. There's only one Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ. In his sermon to the synagogue in Antioch, Paul proclaimed in Acts 13.38, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Not, not men, this man, singular. There's only one Messiah. There's only one saviour of sinners and it's Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom, in whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's only through one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this fact is something that uh, the vast majority of people are completely ignorant of. The Lord Jesus here in verse 10 um, addresses man's ignorance. The first few words of verse 10 are, But that ye may know. But that ye may know. You see, like the congregation here in our story, all men by nature are ignorant of who Christ is and they're ignorant of what Christ can do. Even, even these theologically trained scribes 
were ignorant. They were ignorant of the exclusive power Jesus had to forgive sins. And, and Jesus said, that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Given what we read elsewhere about Christ's disciples, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if even his disciples didn't understand at this stage. That even his disciples were really ignorant of, of who he really was and of his power and authority as the Daniel 7, Son of Man. I expect that they were astonished at the claims he was making. They, they wouldn't be astonished by now that he was healing, that he healed people's bodies. But to publicly declare a man's sins to be forgiven, surely that was going beyond the power of an authority of any man. And these people in the room, these different people, the ordinary people, the scribes, the disciples, they all... heard Jesus, they, some of them would have heard him before they hear him teach they see his miracles the scribes have expert knowledge in, in, in the messianic prophecies and yet they all remain in ignorance Christ was sent to the lost sheep of Israel and many had a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And you know how true that is. How true it, that is even of many people who have been brought up in the church, who have received a Christian upbringing, who have been immersed in, in Christian culture, and yet they remain ignorant of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is and what he can really do for them. You see, the one thing you need to understand about the Lord Jesus is that he has the power to forgive your sins and that without his forgiveness, forgiveness you will perish in your sins. That's the gospel message. There is a power and authority that uniquely and exclusively resides in Jesus Christ. It is the divine power that these people witnessed in this room. And which Christ demonstrated in the healing and forgiveness of this paralysed man. You see, mere religion, a mere Christian upbringing... Mere church attendance even cannot touch your deepest need. Christ can do something for you which religion can never do. And this poor paralysed man experienced something that none of the scribes for all their education, none of the Pharisees had ever experienced he experienced something that none of the temple rituals could do for a man. He received something deep within him that only Jesus Christ can do. He received forgiveness of sins 
deep within his soul. Do you know it's possible, I've said it before, to know a lot about the Bible and not know the God of the Bible. It's possible to know much about the Christian church, to be culturally immersed in Christianity and yet to never know what this paralysed man experienced on this day. You see, he was lowered down by his four friends into the very presence of Christ and he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That's the difference between religion and, and a biblical salvation is that there comes a day, there comes a time when you in your life have a direct encounter with Jesus Christ and you're never the same again. That's the difference. Like the woman with the issue of blood who, who touched the hem of Christ's garment, she received the power of Christ and it transformed not only her, her, her body, that issue of blood was dried up, but she received Christ himself deep within her. Yes, there were a lot of people in that room on that day. There was no room to receive them, not so much was a, as about the door, the Bible says. A great number of people in this room witnessed, they witnessed the power of Jesus but the text only records one person being the subject of Christ's power there's a big difference between being a, between witnessing Christ and being the subject of Christ's power in Christ's ministry of preaching and healing through the towns and villages literally thousands heard his message but most remained unforgiven. Most presumed that they were righteous in themselves. Many of, of the ordinary men and women, they, they, they heard him gladly. They loved his style because he preached as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They hung on, 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 on every all the gracious words that proceeded from his lips. But most never knew what this paralytic man experienced. Why? Because they never progressed from just witnessing or watching Christ to being the subject of the power of Christ. You see, to be a Christian... Just like this paralysed man, you have to personally encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to come into personal contact spiritually with the gospel and you have to be born again. You know, you know, unless you completely switch off when it's time for the sermon here, everyone in this church will know an awful lot about Jesus and about the gospel and about the Bible. Everyone here will have heard about Jesus. But I have one really urgent question for everyone here today. Have you had a personal encounter with the power of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins? That's what matters. 
The truth is, whatever you've witnessed about Jesus, no matter what you've observed or heard, without knowing personally that your sins have been forgiven, you will never know real joy and you will never know the truth of all the things that have been taught from this pulpit. And the one thing I want to get across to you today, and just if you forget everything else I say, the message I want you to hear is that Christ has the power to forgive your sins today. Only Christ can do this for you. And even if that means getting onto the roof, metaphorically speaking, go to him. Get to him. Go to him as a little child. Go to him as a leper. Go to him as a blind man. Go to him as a paralyzed man. Go to him just in whatever condition you are. Don't try and reform yourself and fix yourself because you'll make it worse. Don't delay, as, as the hymn says, and it must be true because it's from the Baptist hymnal, let not conscience make you linger. Not a fitness strongly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So we need. And get to him. In your need. In your brokenness. In the way that you, you are. Come to him. Because it's only through him that you'll ever know forgiveness. What is the central message of the gospel? It is that God has lifted the sentence of condemnation upon Christians for their sins through the death of Christ on their behalf and that he no longer counts them as guilty. Forgiveness of sins is offered to sinners on the basis of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ which means that the guilty can be pardoned for all the sins that they have committed. The forgiven sinner can receive freedom from all the spiritual consequences of sin. The justified sinner will never be asked by God. Listen to this. The justified sinner will never be asked by God to answer for his sins ever again in time or in eternity. You know, even, it's true of all of us to different degrees. Sometimes we can't uh, help but wince at the thought of the things that we've done in the past. The things we've done or left undone. But you know, you and I should never Recall, we should never remember things which God has promised to forget. Hebrews 8 12, it says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God has chosen never to remember any of, the, any of your sins which He has forgiven. He never remembers them ever again. And here we are dragging it all back up, looking at it and, and, and bringing it back up. God has forgotten. God has put it out of his memory. Out of, he chooses not to remember 
your sins. They're forgiven. If you're a Christian. Our God says in Isaiah 43.25. I even am he. That blotteth out thy transgressions. For mine own sake. And will not remember thy sins. Isn't that wonderful? Our God declares in Isaiah 44. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. And as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me for I have redeemed thee. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them. Which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1 begins with no condemnation. And Romans 8, is it verse 39, ends with there's no separation. The two bookends of the Christian life. No condemnation, no separation. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's true of you. If you're a Christian this morning, there is no condemnation for you and there's no separation for you from the love of God. And so Christians, uh, stop bringing up to your mind deeds in your past which God has blotted out and promised not to remember. It's not piety to do that. It's not, that's not true religion. That's unbelief. God has blotted them out. It's not for you to drag them back up. Some Christians seem to be paralysed, not physically, but they're paralysed with guilt. But remember that when Jesus pardons your sin, they are, par they are really pardoned. Because he's the son of man. The Bible doesn't ask you to wallow in your past. It doesn't even ask you to wallow in your falls as a Christian. Yes, we need to um, keep short accounts of ourselves with God and when we sin we must repent and we must keep a check on ourselves but we're not to wallow in guilt because we're, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus on the contrary Hebrews 10 says speaks of boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh. It's our job as Christians to, to live in such a way that we never let such love down again. Is that true? To be loved like that requires us not to sin against such love, not out of law or even out of duty, but because to be loved like that why would we want to offend such grace and love? You and I, if we're Christians, because of Christ's forgiveness, we are at peace with God. God, God and I, and if you're a Christian, God and you are at one. Isn't that all we need in life? To be at one with God? No longer to be... Uh, alienated from him but to be brought to him reconciled to him in a relationship with him that can never break 
Nothing can break it. Nothing in life, in death, in the heights or in the depths. No power. Nothing in life, nothing in death. Can ever separate us. It's unbreakable. If you're not a Christian today, let me say with all seriousness that you must have your sins forgiven in order to have peace with God. It's so instructive here in this story that um, when this man was lowered through the roof and landed, as it were, at Jesus' feet, he didn't say, son, your body be restored to you, did he? He, he didn't say, son, your mobility be restored to you. The first thing Jesus says is, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Because he, the Lord Jesus knew that the deepest, the gravest, the most urgent need of this man was not his disability, but his sin problem. The effect of sin was all over this man, wasn't it? His disability wasn't necessarily a result of his personal sin. We must be very careful ever to say that. It may have been, but it's... Uh, but one thing we, we, we do know is that it was as a consequence of sin coming into the world that this man was disabled. It's an effect of general sin, even if it wasn't of his own personal sin. But he was a sinner because all men are sinners. He was guilty and he was unforgiven. And no doubt in the presence of such holiness, thoughts of physical healing receded and, and he's a, he, he had the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his heart that he needed to be, to be washed from his sins, to be rid of this burden of sin, this guilt. He felt the strength of conscience and he felt the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You see, this man, the same as you and I, had sinned against Christ personally. Christ as God had the right to judge and condemn him. He had the right to send him to hell. But instead as the divine son of man. He exercised his authority and power. To forgive this man and make him whole. Christ is the one who has come to bear our sins in his own body. And he has the right to declare them forgiven. And he wants the same for you. That's the thing. He wants the same for, for you and I. We don't know him today. If we remain in unforgiven sin, he wants you to come to him and be forgiven. Christ promises in John 6:37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. See, the key thing, like the paralyzed man, is that you come to Jesus. You, you may say, well, there, there are obstacles. It's, not so e it's easy for you to say, preacher, but I'm going to have problems. My wife might leave me. My children might not speak to me. My friends will call me strange. It's not going to suit the way that I live. There's so many things I'm entangled with. I, I could never get free of all these problems. 
you know, whatever it is, dear friend, whatever obstacle um, you have, or you think you have, do what this man did. Sick and helpless as he was, he got four friends to tie him to a stretcher and lower him through a roof. He disturbed the service to get to Jesus. And his friends sat him before Jesus. They had faith in Christ. Verse 5 says they, Jesus saw their faith. He saw his faith, the paralyzed, but he saw their faith too. I'm going to come to an end now just by saying all you need to come to Christ is faith. All you need to come to Christ is faith. You may, you may feel the record of your sin is so bad that you're beyond the pale, that you're beyond hope, that you're beyond redemption. You may feel the burning heat of your shame and guilt and, and even as Christians sometimes that, that may come back to us. You may feel that your faith is so small and weak and puny let me say this one last few things. To be saved, to become a Christian, you don't need great faith. It just has to be real faith. Jesus said that it can be as small as the tiniest seed that you can hardly see. That's enough faith. It's all the faith you need. As long as it's genuine faith. Well what makes faith genuine? It's not the amount. It's not the strength. It's not the energy. It's not the noise. It's not even the passion of it. What makes it real faith is that tiny as it is. Whatever faith you have you place it in Jesus. That's what makes faith genuine. It's where, or rather in whom, your faith is placed that matters. Christ doesn't call us to penance. He doesn't call us to great shows of religion. He doesn't ask you to pay anything back for all the offences you have caused him. He doesn't ask you to reform yourself. None of that will help. Whatever faith he has given you, just put it in him and that makes it real and it's enough and he has promised never to turn a single person away who places their faith in him isn't that amazing no matter who you are what you've done how small your faith is or how big your faith is put it in him and you will be saved well, have you ever known this encounter with Jesus? How do you know if you've ever met with Jesus really? How did the people know that Jesus claimed, how did the people know what Jesus claimed to do for this man came about? Well, obviously because of the great transformation that resulted from what Christ had done for him. Verse 11, I say unto thee, arise, and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And verse 12. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all 
insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. The man was utterly changed. And the power of Christ enabled him to walk through the crowd as they made way for him. He got up and walked. He was a new man. There was a change in his life, a public, visible change in his life. And that was the, rea- that was the evidence of the reality of what Christ had done for him. It was the evidence of the power of Christ upon his life. Jesus said in another place, by, by their fruit ye shall, fruits ye shall know them. See, it's amazing. I am finishing now. You see, it's amazing when people claim that they've encountered Jesus Christ, who has power beyond description, and yet they seem to come out of that encounter completely unchanged. And years and years go by, and they're as worldly as they ever were. Now, the initial transformation that a person experiences through conversion, the growth in holiness is not uniform. Some Christians have a, have a radical change right from the beginning, others less so. Some Christians bear more fruit than others in holiness. We're all different. Sanctification takes time and people grow at different speeds. But surely if there is no fruit at all, if there's never any progress, if there's never any transformation, the question really must be asked if, if you've really ever re- met with Jesus. Because, you see, that there is a form of Christianity or godliness, which has, has no power in it. Paul, Paul spoke about this, didn't he? He talked about the, the, the apostasy of the last days. We, very likely we're in it at the moment. And he talks in 2 Timothy 3 about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. There's a form of religion or Christianity even that has no power in it because there's no transformation of life. That's not real. I don't believe it's possible to have real contact with Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. Forgiveness of sins, Christian salvation has visible results. Not the same in everyone, but visible nonetheless. And Jesus said to this paralyzed man, get up and go home. Go and live this new transformed life. Where? In your home in your family, in the reality of your life, in your community. Make a difference there. And you know, when this man went home, I mean, I'm sure that every time this man was seen in the street, people would nudge each other and point and say, there's the man who's now walking and he used to be paralysed. There is the man. Look at the difference Jesus has made in his life. Look at him now compared to what he was. Well, I hope that's true of you and I, spiritually speaking. Because if not, there's something wrong, dear friends. I trust this is true of us, that we are living witnesses of the difference Jesus has made. 
And I trust that all of us will come to him whom to know is life eternal. Amen. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com That's grace2seekers at gmail.com Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk